Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 331, recorded November 8th, 2020. So lately we've done a lot of Gold Key and UK strips, so today we're doing something a little different with the uh, Star Trek New Visions issues 16 and 17, uh, and these are the uh, John Byrne uh, photo novels kind of thing. Right. And uh, these are pretty... These are pretty meaty books. I mean, there's yeah, a lot they're, of... They're, yeah, they're all basically annual-sized yeah. books. Yeah, so there's a lot of story going on. Um, and, I don't know, maybe some people might say a little bit of filler. Maybe. Maybe. Um, but they're great. I mean, just... He continues to amaze how he can put all these things together. Um, right. Yeah. From, from, three, from three years worth of Star Trek TV show footage, how he can mix and match it all is just amazing. It really is. You think he has to watch it frame by frame just to, to get just the right look on Shatner's face? I, I think perhaps. His new body. I yeah, think it's, perhaps. It's really impressive. Yeah, yeah. A lot of patience putting all this stuff together. But thank God for Photoshop, I bet, or whatever oh, yeah. he uses to put these things together. Yeah, I think in the first issue he said he uses Photoshop. Yeah, okay, Photoshop. There you go. All right, well, shall we just jump into the two issues? Because they are a little long. Yeah, they, and um, go figure, I'm a little long on my synopsis too. But but you Ooh. are, or you, you had said you are. Mine feels longer than it normally is, because yeah. I usually try to keep things brief. But uh, yeah. there's a lot of, lot of junk happens. <laughs> okay. Let's go for it. And also in this first one, issue number 16, there's three stories, Ken. Three. So yes. uh, we'll have to do it uh, three three at a time. So I'll just do the first one, and then uh, we'll do the second one and third one. Yeah. Yeah. Those last two are short. Yeah. Uh, I don't have a lot to say. No, I don't have a lot to say about them either. All right. So, uh, so then I'll go ahead and get started. So issue 16 came out June of 2017. The photo montage was by John Byrne, created Star Trek, is created by Gene Roddenberry, edited by Chris Royale, and published by Ted Adams. Every time I see Ted Adams, side note, I think of the Adams family because of Ted Cassidy being Lurch and Adams family. So every time I read that, that's that's who I'm thinking of, Lurch. Cool. <laughs> All right. So uh, the covers... Oh. Yes, and he he also has a Star Trek connection. So uh, there you go. Yes, he does. What Ruck? Ruck the robot? Yeah, the giant robot. There you go. All right, you ready? Let's go. All right. So the cover has Kirk at the bottom of the page, and he's kind of looking up, and it's a montage of pictures uh, starting from twelve o'clock, and then going around. We see. Uh, the pic- a picture of the Enterprise blowing up. Some random, a random blue CG creature alien of some sort. 
Uh, we see Rand in a blue uniform. We see Spock on fire. We see a worried-looking McCoy. And then we see Finnegan with his arms outstretched, kind of shrugging his shoulders. So the first story is called Time Out of Joint. So it starts off with Kirk in engineering, seeing what the miracle worker can do while they're under attack. The ship is rocked a few times, and then Kirk decides to return to the bridge. When he steps off the turbo lift, the scene is normal, and Spock tells him that they're soon to arrive at planetoid DT-262 in about seven minutes. Kirk is confused since this was the planet they had already arrived at when they were attacked. Without giving any explanation, Kirk orders the ship to high alert as they approach the planetoid. Kirk then decides to leave sickbay to see if McCoy can detect anything weird with him. As he enters the door to sickbay, he travels into the future where McCoy is flooded with injured crew members from everywhere in the ship. Kirk tries to contact the bridge and McCoy stops him, surprised that he does not remember that the bridge is gone and everybody on it was dead. Kirk leaves, only to find himself now transported months into the past and greeted by Spock, who was just walking by. Kirk then turns around and re-enters sickbay for that scan, but then he notices another shift. Uh, he decides not to get the scan, and he decides to then return to the bridge, only to find it exploding with some sort of attack. He actually watches Spock catching on fire. Uh, the Vulcan pushes the captain into the turbo lift so that he does not suffer the same fate. When he steps off, everything is back to normal, and he finally gets Spock and McCoy together to tell them that he's leaping from time to time. He steps out again, and he's back into the battle. Another doorway, and then he's back in Starfleet HQ and uh, confronting crew member Finnegan. I guess it's Cadet Finnegan at this time. He walks out of that room expecting another leap, but he doesn't leap. He then talks to his longtime friend, Gary Mitchell. And after a bit of this, another jump, this time to an alien ship where Kirk finds himself along with several red shirts as they watch the Enterprise burn in space. They are then attacked by what seems to be robots. Just then, he leaps again. Now he's back three minutes before arriving to the planet. He tells Spock to do a specific scan and... When he does so, they find a ship that is somehow cloaked out of time. They are then attacked. Kirk, Scotty, and some red shirts decide to beam over to the craft to see what they could do to stop this. Instead of beaming over, Kirk leaps to some time in the future where he is being tortured by the CG blue aliens from the cover. They claim that he attacked first. There's a scuffle. And then the aliens tell him that the rogue planet DT-262 is on a collision course to destroy their homeworld. And since the Enterprise was there, they assume that it's an attack from the Enterprise. Then Kirk steps through a doorway and he leaps yet again. He arrives sometime in the past. It's not quite clear. Uh, it, is, it does say that it's three weeks after Rand has been reassigned to the Enterprise as a lieutenant. She's wearing the blue shirt or blue skirt. He then talks to Scotty about his plan about how to stop the aliens. 
before he leaps again. This time to Earth, where he is talking to Janet Wallace. And uh, she's breaking it up with him. He really does not have time for any of this, and he leaves, like in the middle of her speech. Very rude-like. Uh, he walks through a doorway expecting the leap, but he doesn't. And then he walks through another door, no leaping. Is he perhaps stuck forever? Meanwhile, Scotty tells Spock and McCoy of Kirk's orders just before disappearing. Spock agrees with it, and then they use the phasers to carve a huge crater out of the planetoid. And then they beam down enough explosives to cause the planet to change orbit, or change its course. Thereby missing the alien's homeworld at some time in the future. With the threat resolved, time resets, and Kirk is back, and everyone has just some hazy memories of being in the middle of doing something else or saying something else when now they're here on the bridge. Oh, well, off to the next wacky adventure. Leon. Okay, so Kirk becomes unstuck in time because of an exploding engineering console is that what it was i thought it was the just that the ship was being attacked with time weapons and he just happened to get hit like it like somehow got through the ship and got to him but why just him i don't know well uh, i, I think mean i know why just him because he's 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 the main he's character, the main character. <laughs> yeah i think all this started happening when uh when that console blew up uh, and knocked him back, I think. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, whatever. Main point is, it's happening. He's unstuck in time. He's popping back and forth in different periods of his uh, his own life, even right. even forward in time. So. Yep, forward, backwards, sideways. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So the, the 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 series I kept thinking of when I was reading this was Quantum Leap. Mm-hmm. So in that one, he leaps from life to life from time to time so but but it was always within his own timeline right so he couldn't right. go before he was born and he couldn't go after he was di- he died so um in that regard it was very similar i thought but uh but you had some better examples as to uh, other stories or franchises where somebody actually leaps through their own timeline right yeah, so the thing that came to my mind first was uh, Kurt Vonnegut's novel, uh, Slaughterhouse-Five, which I've pretty much seen the movie, so um, I don't think I ever read the book. Sorry, I could sound re- really smart and stuff, but um, it's the movie. So in Slaughterhouse-Five, uh, the main character is jumping. They have the term, uh, he becomes unstuck in time, and he's jumping to different uh, events in his life and he's reliving them. So he's reliving parts of his life. Uh, so there's one particularly traumatic one where the father is like, Oh, well, sink and swim, sink or swim. You know, he's a big blow hard with his buddies at some, some, you know, country club or something. And he's got his, uh, you know, uh, seven year old son or something. He's going to throw him inside the pool and that's how he's going to learn how to how to how to uh, swim. And of course, he sinks. So uh, he, he's reliving that traumatic thing, and then and then he ends up in World War II because uh, he had lived through 
uh, you know, the war. Uh, anyway, so he comes popping back and forth and everything like that. So that is the first thing I thought of. Uh, another thing I thought of was there's a uh, Star Trek Discovery episode, Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad. Uh, that was the one with Harry Mudd. Oh, yeah, that was um, a good one. That was a great one. That, I think that was my favorite Star Trek Discovery episode ever. But that isn't quite the same. But the, uh, Mudd was doing his nefarious things on, the, on Discovery because he kept on going back in time. So he could, he could go back. He, he had a device or something that allowed him to go back in time. Now, right. Stamets was the only guy, uh, I guess, due to his fungus network traveling stuff. I don't know. Uh, right. he, he's the only guy that really could remember that. So that's not quite the same because it's just a loop. And sure. if we talk about loops, oh my God, there's so yeah, many there's examples of that. Star Trek stuff. But that. <laughs> yeah, but that came to my mind a little bit. And then the last thing uh, that I'll just mention is Tapestry. So there's a TNG episode, Tapestry, of course. We all know what it, that one is, where Picard is uh, revisiting his past. But it's all directed by Q, so it's not really unstuck. I mean, Q is actually popping him into his body right. uh, at different times, and he's in control of it. So it's not quite the same thing. But uh, anyway. I that that one that. reminds me more of uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Yes. Yep. That too. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, uh, so so anyways, this one was – and it was kind of weird in this, this story in that uh, Kirk always had to walk through a door. It was like or – so, but it yes. was it was so inconsistent. But right. he seemed to only uh, pop through time when he walked through a door, with the exception of the time where he was, like, talking to McCoy, Scotty, which also didn't make sense because I never felt like he was disappearing. He was just – his consciousness was moving to an earlier version of himself. Right. Whereas in that last jump, after yes. he talked to Rand and then he went and talked to Scotty, it's implied that he just disappears. Right. Like, he doesn't even exist on the ship anymore, which that didn't make sense to me. Right. It's like – if you set your rules, you gotta follow them. You can't right. suddenly change them at the end. Yeah, uh, and and if you weren't just popping into your body, uh, but you actually physically were jumping in time, so there was two of you back at Starfleet Academy when you walked up to Finnegan, right? Uh, you know, and and Finnegan didn't notice he's got a ca- a funny looking captain's uniform uh, yeah, exactly. that he's ever seen before, right? Um, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Same with time travel stories. You know, you, you set up your rules and you have to follow them. Otherwise, I'm out. Unless it gets in I don't care what your your rules are. As long as you follow your own rules, I'm I'm with you for the whole show or the whole ride. But yeah. it's when you, like, <laughs> screw it up at the end, like on uh, Men in Black 3, I, thought, I think that's a very good example where yeah. – they imply that you can't jump into your own body, but then at the at the end, yeah, you can when when we want you to. Exactly, exactly. It's like the J.J. Abrams thing. <laughs> Never let uh, logic get in the way of a good story <laughs> or a, a neat thing. Is that is that is that what he says? No. Well, I don't know. I he must he must say that. I've never heard right. him say that, but he must say that. The Enterprise under the water? I mean, come on. Uh, Novas what? that can travel, you know, across star systems, the, gu- the gulfs of space between star systems? 
uh, you know, I don't care. I don't care how much they want to retcon it with, oh, some special mineral or whatever. Anyway, whatever. Is that what they say? I thought it was Borg juice. No, I thought it was. I thought. I thought there was some more retconning, especially with like the Picard thing revisiting all this stuff again, um, where there was supposedly some mineral or something that was involved. I don't know. It's just, it's, yeah, no, no. Well, you're talking about water. Uh, just to give you a little, a little snippet, uh, issue number 18 of New Visions mm-hmm. has the Enterprise underwater. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, they've done it multiple times. Right. And it's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess when you got to think of something cool, I mean, that was pretty cool, the Enterprise coming out of the water at the beginning. Of, oh, man, uh, it looked great. It looked great. It was wonderful. And there was a couple of good jokes, like with the with the sea monsters swimming by, and Scotty's like, oh. has anybody seen it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was good, but yeah, you're right. It doesn't quite make sense. No. Uh, so anyways, back to, back to this, this one. This story? Uh, the uh, Spock on Fire, I thought, looked really good um, with the whole bridge, and actually it looks like they're in pain and blistering, and uh, it was like, man, that's pretty rough yeah and, and then uh, and then later when uh kirk and the team of red shirts are on the alien ship looking at the enterprise wow uh it's like 40 percent of the uh the saucer section is like blown out right and one of the nacelles is on fire uh which uh how can things be on fire in the vacuum of space i'm not quite sure but uh well, that's it the looks oxygen really cool. escaping the ship Okay, well there you go. Um, anyway, I think that looks pretty cool too. So they they, they got some good visuals. Uh, right, Burn has done very well. Right, and I actually kind of like the idea that uh, that the creatures thought that since the Enterprise was next to this planetoid, even though they didn't they didn't like push it towards their planet, but right. they know that you know in so many years that planet's going to smash into theirs. And they're like, it must be them. Kill them. I kind of <laughs> like that. I kind of like their motivation. Uh, I just didn't like, and, and I even kind of liked how their attack against the Enterprise somehow inadvertently dislodged Kirk from time. So the premise of the, the, the book, I, I really thought was good. Well, just that last step. I agree with the first part. I'm not... disappear, I didn't like. Yeah. I agree with anyway. the first part. Uh, not so much with the second part. So the idea that they thought the Enterprise was responsible for directing the rogue planet. When I first heard, when I first read that in the book, it was like, really? They thought that? But the more I thought about it, and when you just presented it there, it's like, okay, well, I, I guess it does make more sense than I gave it credit for. Um, so, yeah, cool. I mean, it's, that's an awesome way of uh, of taking out... I mean, if you really want to... If you really want to take out uh, an enemy planet, uh, throw a big rock at it. It's really effective. So it worked for the late aliens on uh, in in uh, Starship Troopers. Oh right, yep. Did, is that how they did it in the movie too? I can't remember, but in the book they definitely um, yeah they the aliens out. are the aliens are very scientific in the book and they're and they're able to launch asteroids and yep. stuff to Earth. Yeah, they took out Buenos Aires. 
So in the movie, movie, do they explain how they do it if they're just bugs? I no, they didn't explain it at all. Okay, they just they just did it. <laughs> oh, we're being we're being attacked. So now now we have an excuse to go and kick some uh, you know insect huge insect butt. Right. Uh, but they never explained how they could do that. But but then when they're attacking, they've okay. So you've got spaceships coming to a planet that has a bunch of bugs on it. Well, bombarded from space, from these spaceships. How about doing that? And I, you've seen the movie, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just been a while. Okay, okay. But when they were, sh- when, the, when the specialized bugs were like shooting plasma bolts out of their, their butts. Yeah, into orbit. Yeah, into but... orbit. That was like, oh my God. <laughs> well, I guess uh, anyway. Uh, it just just kind of hard to swallow, but so uh one thing I want to make a, a a correction to my synopsis. Oh, yes. After he confronts uh Rand, mm-hmm. I guess he does do a time jump into the exact moment where he and Scotty were in at the beginning when he first jumped. Right. So I guess that's that's the part I missed when I was first reading it. That uh, that when he he did jump in between there, so that still did he jump into his into a possible future, or is Rand on the ship during all this? Because if you're reading them in order, uh, Rand is not on the ship yet. No, I I thought the whole Rand thing was she she was. I thought the Rand thing was a uh, a jump back in time. Okay, that's what I. So thought. you're saying the next story is a is in the past. Oh, because we're about story. to we're about to read. Oh, well, she a does story the, where she comes back. So she does have the blue uniform, doesn't she? Yeah, uh, and he even calls her Yeoman, and she's like, Yeoman, I'm a lieutenant. Remember? No, you're right. You're right. It must be jumping into the future, but a future where the Enterprise isn't destroyed. Exactly. Yeah, I was a little confused during all that part. Yeah. Good point, good point. But what got me was that he says, right now it's Mr. Scott I want to see, and then the next panel he's with Scotty, but there is that explosion, yeah. so I guess I guess you, you're supposed to interpret it that he jumped, but he jumped, he was able to control it, and he jumped into the very first, his first jump? I don't know. I don't think he control anything. But somehow he's like, I'm going to Mr. Scott, and then boom, he's with Mr. Scott. It just, that seemed weird. Yeah. That is weird, but I really don't see how he could have control over anything. Right. And then he, and then after that jump, he, he just disappears. Mm-hmm. Erased from time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. After he tells Scotty, let's drill a big hole and then put in a bunch of dynamite. See exactly. what happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how you would, uh, how you would do it. Now, I thought it was kind of interesting that they had to use the ship's phasers to drill a very precise, you know, convex. Is that, is that the right word? Convex? Right. Concave? Convex? I don't know. Um, concave. Concave. Okay. So they had to drill out a hole uh, with the ship's phasers, but it had to be exactly precise and just what Spock said uh, right. to help um, have the thrust maximize the yield of the blast of whatever right. that just stuff funnel was. funnel it into... Into a rocket blast versus exactly. just spreading out. I thought that was pretty cool. I mean, <laughs> he didn't have to. 
Byrne didn't have to say that, but sure. he did. And it's like, oh, that's kind of cool. I, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, actually wasted like three pages on it. <laughs> <laughs> three pages of filler. It did feel a little fillery, but it was also like, oh, that, that actually makes sense. I never would have thought about it. Yeah. There you go. But no, it was, it was, I like that. And I, I mean, why don't they just beam this stuff onto Kronos next time they're in a fight? I mean, this stuff is pretty. This dynamite stuff can really do some exactly. damage. Exactly, this future dynamite stuff, whatever they called it. Right. I did like the the shot of McCoy when when they say what they're going to beam over, and then McCoy like has that sidelong glance, and he's like, "What?" <laughs> so you're messing with that stuff. Yeah. I uh, I really enjoyed the gory wounds in uh, in sick bay. Oh man, like somebody's like mangled leg or something. It it, it looks like uh, like four pounds of raw hamburger meat. Um, that they that burn just kind of like superimposed on a uh, <laughs> on a red shirt's leg thigh. Right. Yeah, and it's really grisly. I mean, you would yeah. never you would you never saw anything that grisly in Taws, or I don't think anything from Star Trek. Now, if anything in Star Trek is going to show something grisly like that, I'm going to go ahead and say Discovery is going to do it. But uh, of course, they're also in production, aren't they? But I mean, Star Trek's always steered clear of that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, even open heart surgery is pretty, uh, pretty Low tame. Blood. Yeah. Or or putting Spock's brain back in. Oh yeah, that's a very point. clean. That's a very clean yeah. process. <laughs> yeah, you take it out, put it into a robot. <sighs> exactly. <laughs> His brain's gone, Jim. Well, <sighs> what'd you think about uh, the Finnegan scene? Uh, I mean, it was kind of funny to see him, but. He's just a big whiny baby. He is a big you, whiny baby. You can't get past me because I'm an upperclassman. <laughs> what? You gotta pass me. Yeah. So they keep on talking about Finnegan. So why does Finnegan pick on Kirk so much? Is it just that Kirk just got unlucky? Or here's my just, this theory just came into my mind. Uh, I don't think it was advanced in some some canon story, but. I was thinking, okay, so Kirk is supposed to be really smart uh, and reads a lot and obviously was the youngest captain, so he was probably kicking butt in uh, at the academy. And you can just see some probably half-wit upperclassman like Finnegan who's looking at this smart underclassman who's making him look bad or something. So, he, so the bully targets... Uh, the guy who's making him look bad because uh, he's so precocious. So that's my theory on why Finnegan doesn't like Kirk and keeps on giving him a hard time. Because why else would he be doing it? It's like, geez, man. Maybe break, uh, Finnegan. maybe Janet Wallace was Finnegan's girlfriend and, and oh, Kirk Janet wooed Wallace. her. He wooed her. Maybe so. Of course, he met Janet's a lot later. I during, thought they, they knew the deadly, each other during the deadly it, years. Uh, that was, but I thought it, it's implied that they were in a relationship 
years back. So I think that this is implying. Oh, during that, Academy days? I don't know. I mean, they're on Earth when she's breaking up with him. So. Oh, when, but I thought that was. I thought that was beyond Academy days. You think so? I kind of took I, it. That, yeah. Well, uh, well yeah. They, they they don't tell you. So, but I'm theorizing. I don't know. What I thought is that that whole thing about. Uh, you know, where they're together and Earth and they're breaking up and whatever. I thought that was after the Deadly Years. But you're bringing up the idea that it may have been before the episode of the Deadly Years. So I, I, didn't, I didn't catch that. But you, you, that might be the case. Yeah, that's the way I took it. Yeah, yeah. But, but really, the only way to know for sure is if you watch the Deadly Years, because... They had a relationship in that episode, and you're saying that that, epi- that relationship existed before the episode started, which is completely possible. I just don't remember that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, because <laughs> okay. I'm going off of, uh, according to uh, Wikibeta, okay. no, okay. no, no uh, this is Memory Alpha. Okay. It says, Janet and James Kirk were romantically involved in 2020. 2020- 2261, but the two called it off in favor of their respective careers. Okay. So this implies it's that... Two, uh, and, and I think the events... This would be like six years before the events of the show. Right, because the events of the show were exactly 200 years in the future. Right. Okay. Okay, yeah, fine. So there you go. So, so I don't know. So I that's guess probably, that's probably... It's probably after Academy... And before um, Taws. Yeah, so he, they break up and he goes off to the fair again or something. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Yeah, but yeah. I don't, and so I got another question. So sure. I guess because time reset, because they, they stopped it. Mm-hmm. But does him jumping back and forth in time affect his timeline? Like, because he went back and he... Didn't he tell Spock and McCoy earlier, like months before... They went to the planet that he's been jumping back and forth, but they don't ever seem to remember that when we're back in the battle. So I guess whatever happens is just more of like a memory of what happened and not he's actually traveling through time. What, I guess. What do you think? Uh, I, uh, I don't know. <laughs> a little bit like the butterfly effect, but at least the butterfly effect tried to imply that if he changed something or said something in the past, that it would affect his future. Right. Did you ever see that one? I guess that was well, right. with the movie. Yeah, the yeah butterfly yeah. effect with yeah, Ashton yeah. Kutcher, right? Or whatever. Yeah, I, I think this is very not. Uh, I don't. In a lot of ways, I, I I see this jumping around as not affecting the people in those time periods. But obviously, he did. Or else Scotty and McCoy and Spock and all those guys wouldn't have, uh, you know, redirected the asteroid. Right. So, but it's like they didn't remember anything until he disappeared for good. Exactly. Yeah, I don't know. Don't so it's inconsistent with its own. Again, inconsistent with its own thing. Yeah. Its own rules. Oh well. Um, so yeah. Anything else? I just have one last bit of inconsistency uh, that I want to run by you. All right. Okay, so Kirk says that Gary has been dead for a half dozen years. So oh, yeah, yeah. Right? So that's six years. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so that means that the second pilot where no man has gone before did not take place during the five-year mission because it couldn't, right? So, yeah, because this is year five, so it would have had to have been... Exactly. So, okay, so going by the episode's air date, which was 9-22-1966, that was the air date of, of where no man has gone before. Um it it really has to be part of the five year mission. So um it's the third episode. It the way they aired it, it ended up being the third episode of the first season. So it's like in the middle. Even though it was a pilot, they aired it as the third episode of the first season. So it's gotta be part of the five year mission. Even yeah, though so their, their uniforms round, look different. Just round it up. Round it up. You're yeah. talking about a difference between five and six years ago? No. Well, I mean, if it was the well, if this is year five, if if this is supposed to be like year five, then and he died in the very first episode or the very first mission, then he would have died five years ago. Uh, um. Yes, but it's I don't know why he picked six years. Yeah, it's a weird way to word it. And and, and maybe they're just trying. He's trying to say a half dozen years to just give you the idea. Mm, it's rough, you know. It's just an approximation. Sure. But um, half dozen is six, and that's, that's true. Not right. Nope. Whatever. And I just—it's not that far off. I agree. It's not that far off. I'm being picky. Mm-hmm. But I just thought, Byrne knows better. So what's, what's, what's the deal? He, he had a bigger box, and six is not as big. As writing half out a dozen the word years? six is not as big as writing out half a dozen years. <laughs> <laughs> okay. He needed to fill out that extra line. Okay. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> uh, and here's, here's my last thing. So when he does see Gary... Um, Burns' creation of Gary's head and face looks a little off. So it looks like he took Gary's face from where no man has gone before, from like the nose up and, and from the upper lip down, took it from a totally different person or maybe a different photo of um, the actor. Uh, that played uh, Gary Mitchell. It's just, just something about it looks like it's off. So that's that's where uh, Gary is saying, "Slow down, pal. What's the rush?" Right. Yeah, it's the only time it shows his face. Right. It just looks a little off. It looks off, and you know, I, I think he's putting he's putting that head on top of Finnegan's body. <laughs> I think I think that's Finnegan's body from. Uh, from so that might be leave. that might be Finnegan's uh, mouth and and chin. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Finnegan has a very pointed chin. Yeah, and why would they do that? I mean, take it. I don't know. It, it if they were trying like, to make him look like younger, be... well, he it... he was pretty young in where no man has gone before. But yeah, I mean, but now he's supposed to be cadet. I don't know, man. I don't know, but um. I don't remember what Gary Mitchell looked like enough to say it definitely doesn't. What? I mean, his eyes are, you know, he has normal eyes. What the hell is that with that? 
I gotcha, gotcha. But no, I'm looking at a picture of Gary Mitchell, and he looks the same. But maybe his like face is a little thinner. Or maybe that's well, just Burn trying well, to. Well, the nose look. and cheekbones up, I agree. It's just, or maybe not even the front of the nose. Anyway, there's something is off about the face. Okay. Uh, but but the ears, the eyes, you know, the hair, fine. That that's Gary Mitchell. But just mm-hmm. something's off about at least the mouth, maybe even the nose area. His nose looks a little bigger. Uh, whatever. <laughs> that's my last comment. That's pretty nitpicky, man. I, I know it's nitpicky, but come on. You're, you're, you're nit, nitpicky at times, too. That's true. I am. Okay. That's it. All right. You ready for the, the, the story second two? story? Yes. Let's, yes. Let's, let's do that. And this one is, like, much longer than it needed to be. <laughs> yes, I agree. And the last one is much shorter than I wanted it to be, so, right. uh, so we'll go with that. So the next story is called Home, and it has Lieutenant Rand being reassigned to the Enterprise. Um, when she beams over, Chapel and Scotty are there to greet her uh, and welcome her back. She then goes to sickbay, and McCoy wishes her well while doing uh, her physical exam. And then she goes off to her new job, which is monitoring the computer somehow, making sure the data doesn't get reviewed too fast. Very unclear on what she's doing, but there's a lot of time spent on it and what her break schedule is and who her coworkers are that I thought was really not needed. Uh, she then eventually gets to take her break that they keep talking about, and she does it in the mess hall where she's joined by Ahura and Chekhov, and there's a little dialogue about Chekhov not knowing her, even though he was recently assigned to the Enterprise while she was still there. Anyways, she goes back to work, and she's being tasked with taking some findings to the bridge. She both dreads and looks forward to this. When she arrives to the bridge, she sees that Kirk is not there, and she hands her reports to Spock. And he does not uh, greet her at all. Or he does not uh, overly greet her like everybody else has. Uh, when she lingers too long, he shoes her off the bridge and basically tells her to get back to her side of the ship. The end. <laughs> Spock is a little terse. Yes. Well, I mean, terse, I don't know if terse is the right thing, but I mean... He does he even acknowledge the fact that, that he hasn't seen her in a long time? No. Okay, I didn't think so. And that's why I think when she's uh, she lingers around too much, he's like, "Did you need anything else on the bridge? If not, I suggest you return to the library section." <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, good old Mister Spock. <laughs> Always business. Always the man doing business. Yeah. So so this is an ongoing, the story of Rand. So it's like, okay, fine. Yeah. Right. You know, she, she was a character that was cut before her time. Fine. Sure. Um, interesting that you chose her. Uh, there are other people that got cut too, but okay. But this is like an ongoing thing. And this particular episode or this particular snippet of her ongoing story is a bit of a yawn. Yeah, I don't need to know. I don't need to see her employee orientation. And they talk about her break schedule and Peg's Mm -hmm. break schedule. And I'm like, I don't care. Nah. (laughs) I get it. And then then they try to talk about what she's doing. And and it didn't make sense to me. You know, you need to make sure that uh, the data doesn't come in too fast. What does that even mean? Well, okay. So that was... 
in my opinion, BS. It's like, pff, that's a job? Wait a minute. I mean, nah. <laughs> it, B- Byrne really stretched. He tried to find something for her to do, and I think uh, he, he, he came up with something that was pretty lame. Right, and I also kind of felt bad that it was all, like, women. So I was like, it's kind of sexist that you're thinking that this is, like, the secretary, secretary secretarial pool. Secretarial pool? Yeah, <laughs> that they're all just doing data entry or whatever. Yeah, like and it's, like it's, that's women's like it's an episode of Mad, Mad Men or something. Yeah. And it's back in the 60s, and that's, women are that's treated That's the badly. way I felt when I read this. Yeah, yeah, good point. And that they're more worried about their break schedule than... I mean, why the whole break thing? They brought it up like three or four times. Oh, that's when Peg goes to break. But then when Peg goes to break, you could take her spot. And then, like, who cares? Who's Peg? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It was very weird. Very weird. I did not care for it. And then, obviously, I like the checkoff thing about, you know, checkoff wasn't in the first season. So Mm -hmm. he wouldn't know who she was. But they're like, well, I was here. For some for some stories I was here, but some stories I'm not. So uh, yeah. uh, you just didn't see me because he he had to be on the ship for season what, what, Space Seed. When, when was, yeah, it was second season? season? One. No, that oh was no, season, okay. Season Space Seed was season one. Yeah. Okay, so he okay. He was just off. He was off. He was just off camera. Well, he was in, he was in engineering, right? Wasn't that the, uh, yeah, the supposed explanation? Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> so he was a red shirt at first. Yeah. Yeah, I watched a recent interview with uh, Walter Koning mm-hmm. where he was talking about the script for uh, Star Trek II. Mm-hmm. And when he got it and he was reading it and, and he saw that he had a big part. You know, he was a commander of another ship. And, mm-hmm. and then he got to the part where Khan remembered him. And he was like, uh, he shouldn't remember me, but I'm not going to say anything because I want this really <laughs> big part. <laughs> Exactly. I'm, I'm not going to point that out to anybody. <laughs> I'm sure people pointed that out to uh, who, who was the writer director? I forgot his name, but I, I'm sure somebody pointed that out to him. And he may have even known it himself, but he just had to have this happen in yeah. the story, which I thought was great. I, I love that Chekhov got promoted and yep. was another yeah. exactly makes sense. People don't just stay on the same exactly. job forever. Love Captain Sulu. Love that kind of thing. Makes makes complete sense. All right. Of course, they Anything all came else? back again, <laughs> back together again. But whatever. But they were at higher ranks yes. until they all got demoted because of their whole stealing a ship and blowing it up. And oh, did they all get demoted? Was that, I know Kirk did. Yeah, so basically, they stole two ships, right, over the course of two movies. No, <laughs> no, Star Trek Two. They 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 were on the ship they were supposed to be on. They just weren't supposed to blow it up. So they blew it up, <laughs> and then they uh, stole the Excelsior. And I, th- I think only Kurt technically got demoted. But yeah. I'm sure it didn't look good on their careers. No, I'm sure it didn't. But... All right. Anything else for this uh, secretary, secretary pool <laughs> episode? Um, just, just one or two little things. Uh, so Rand, Rand's uh, well, boss... I don't know, but the, the person that is showing her the ropes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, lovely woman. I know I recognized her before. And, of course, they knew each other in the past. So they were both on the ship in the past. So I did a little bit of searching. And I thought she was 
especially when they mentioned about uh, she that talked she about when she was a yeoman exactly when she was a yeoman and things got a little ooky with Dr. McCoy so it's like okay so she was on shore leave uh, the, the episode shore leave Oh, okay. So I went back and and verified because I didn't remember her name, but she's uh, to- Tonia Barrows is the character name, and she was that lovely lady that was hanging out with Doctor McCoy on the planet when they got when the White Rabbit came and all that. Uh, stuff. The White Rabbit, and she ended up in like the white dress, the fairy princess dress, or whatever. Huh. Okay. Okay. Um. But that's who she. So I. I I knew I recognized her, and uh, so that's that's who she is. All right, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know who she was. So, but yeah. but they made a big deal of it, but they never say her name at all. So I was no, just like, oh, they well. don't say her name, and that's why I I, I needed to know. I don't, okay, I don't so, know how you figured that out, but kudos. Cause, well, I thought I recognized her from uh, from shore leave. You were able to pull that one out. Well, but not only that, but the fact that. Uh, you know that that Doctor McCoy had a thing with her, uh, so okay. that 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 kind of was icing on the cake, uh, pointing me to short leave. And uh, yeah, I've watched these episodes more than you, <laughs> youngin. That's true. Okay, uh, one last thing I just want to say is in Taws before Janice left the ship, um, they did not have a romantic relationship that I ever saw. No, now, she just pined over him. Well, okay, but. I don't remember them ever showing her pining. Now, Kirk kind of pined for her uh, at the end of the episode, uh, The Naked Time, where uh, Kirk, I guess part of his thing that like unlocked like his true desires or whatever, um, at the very end, he made it very clear that he had the hots for her when he said that... Uh, you know, that semi-famous uh, quote, uh, no beach to walk on. I think that was it. Mm. Um, so, uh, but I don't remember her uh, doing anything that made it seem like she had the hots for the captain. So, anyway. I mean, the whole thing seems like like they had a more, um, maybe not a romantic uh, an acknowledged romantic relationship, but it seems like they had a fairly developed mutual uh, hankering for each other that that they knew about. That well, each other when, knew about. when Kirk turned into evil Kirk, um, oh yeah, she yeah. didn't. She didn't oh. seem like she wasn't going for it for a long oh. time until he got a little rough with her. But up until then, she was like, "It's happening." Oh, okay. Oh, good point. Good point. Okay, so um, the enemy within. Right. Um, that's a good point. I had not thought about that. Okay. Yeah, so I, I always felt like there was some, like, uh, longing, you know, with, with her little sideways glances. Mm-hmm. You know, when Kirk's, like, looking at her butt while she's walking away, um, ah. which I always thought was, was ooky. <laughs> she's your subordinate, and you're, like, well, exactly. checking her out as she walks away. I mean, especially a yeoman. And then she like catches him, and she's like, "He he he! <laughs> you can see my butt cheeks." <laughs> anyway, okay, moving on. I've got All nothing right. else to say. So we're going on to the last story, and it's only one page long, but uh, it's actually kind of kind of funny. I liked it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I did not catch this, but there's either a typo in the title or it's done on purpose, and I don't know which one. But this is entitled Those Who Who Play With Cats. All right, so here it is. Ready? <clears throat> so while McCoy is giving a ship tour to some of the new crew members, Sulu shows Chekhov that it pays to spy on the new personnel so that you can place dibs on any of the hot ladies. And one such lady catches his eye, he being Sulu. He sees her from afar. Uh, He just sees her back, and he likes what he sees. Long, flowing orange hair and a tight communications red miniskirt. He goes up to her to make his move, and when she turns around, he says, Oh my. When he notices that she is a feline-featured Katian. Unperturbed, however, he then starts to put the moves on her and offers her a personal guided tour. The end. <laughs> so, Emress, uh, I, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Right. Uh, wonderful character from the cartoon, Saturday Morning Cartoon Show. And how they have depicted her, how... Byrne has de- has chosen to depict her. I am not crazy about, but it's like, well, okay, you means you can't make her look like a cartoon, so you got to make her look like something. Right. So this is Byrne's shot at what Emress may actually look like in a real live action uh, setting. And right. It's interesting. It's interesting. I, I'm a little like. Eh, eh. <laughs> But, yeah, what do you think? Yeah, so it's basically Ahura's body with uh, with a really... It, it looks like it's drawn. It's not like he took a lion's head and, you know, proportioned it to a human size and, and called yeah. it a day. It, it so, looks like he drew it almost. Yeah, but more realistic. Yeah. Yeah, but with quote, a lot more detail. quote, unquote, more realistic. I don't know. It still looks really jarring. Oh, it's yeah, it's jarring. But, and then uh, and then and then she's even got the tail coming out, right? Which which is why like did he not see the tail when he's like checking her out from behind? I mean, I get that you know it's supposed to be funny, and when she turns around, he's like, oh. Uh, but uh, but I think the tail would have been a giveaway, you know, when you're checking out somebody from behind, and you're like, I'm gonna go put the moves on her. Uh, a wagging tail might might be a. a, a... <laughs> Might be noticeable. Exactly. Exactly. But when he's giving her the guided tour, he has like his hand on right above her butt, and yet you and you can still see the the tail poking out. So. Yep. Yep. Uh, I don't. I, I don't think you can get away with that these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not supposed to. No, not supposed, you're not to supposed to do touch that. Feel like that. Nope. But it's the '60s. I guess they're still channeling the '60s. I guess. Right. So, but yeah, it is an interesting look. I, I liked her hair and stuff because even from the back, you know, it just looked like auburn, orangey auburn hair, mm-hmm. nice, nicely combed and style. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nice thick hair. Oh yeah, but it was a funny story. And and, uh, and you know, he put in George Decay's "Oh my, oh my," that exactly. Cool. That was great. And he's got that big grin. That he's happy. He's 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 digging it. Wasn't there another story where it was implied that? Sulu and and Mares had a relationship. Oh yeah, there was like some some party or something. Yeah, it was a DC comic, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, think and so they too. had Mares, and uh, did they actually do it? 
Yeah, I think so. Like the yeah. next scene showed him like waking up the next morning in the in his bed or something like that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then he's a little not quite sure what to think about it or something. And, right. Uh, and she's like, "Hey, yeah, uh, have breakfast?" Or you know, like she's fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then he's a little. Uh, I'm not so sure. I should have done that. Right. Yeah. I wouldn't have kittens. <laughs> I don't, uh, you know, personally, a cat, I mean, Catwoman, Julie Newmar, no problem. Catwoman this way, I'm not so sure I find that attractive. <laughs> and I'm kind of allergic to cats, so. Oh, yeah, you couldn't, you couldn't hang out with her. I couldn't do that. You'd have to be on Ambien or whatever that, Allegra. All the time. All Allegra the time. all the time. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure they have a, a hypo for it in the future. No, I'm sure. I'm sure. That's it. That's a lot to say. All right. Well, then the next issue is all one <sighs> long, glorious story. Uh, it is long. Um, it, I, I, I think, like the previous one, maybe a little longer than it needed to be. But there is a lot of story there. So maybe so, not all the things had to happen that happened, but... So you're saying um, buckle up. It's going to be a long one? Buckle up, man. Buckle up, there's a lot of stuff going on. Alright, looking forward to it. Okay. Thanks. So, yeah, yeah, you may want to go out for a coffee or something. Okay, <laughs> Star Trek New Visions, uh, number 17. Title is All the Age- Ages Frozen. And published date is August 2017. Um, of course, the same production team. The cover, Kirk and Spock appear to be dying as they lay in two cylinders that kind of look like cryogenic tubes. Kirk is clutching at his throat, apparently unable to breathe, while Spock appears to have already succumbed, since he looks like a Mexican calavera. Green and black control panels are attached to each of the tubes and are being worked by a woman in a diaphanous uh, dress shawl kind of ensemble that's partially obscuring the woman that is apparently responsible for our hero's predicament. And by the way, a calavera is um, is a representation of a human skull. Uh, the term is most often applied to edible or decorative skulls made usually by hand from either by by sugar or clay, and it's used in Mexican celebrations. So. Spock looks like he's dressing up for a Mexican uh, Day of the Dead or something like that. You know, a little bit like uh, like the stuff we saw in that James Bond movie. Uh, anyway, moving on. The Enterprise arrives at planet Artemis 314 and enters orbit. They have come in response to a fragmented distress signal on a Federation band. Spock reports the planet is a standard class M planet currently locked in a deep ice age. He goes on to state that six weeks ago, the SS Giordano Bruno was dispatched here to study the planet's environment, and the distress signal likely came from it. Sulu reports sensors spotted it in a geosynchronous orbit uh, around the equator 300 kilometers above the surface. Sensors indicate no one's on board. The ship's flight plan reported a crew of 15 that includes two families with children. Kirk is distressed that they took children to an unknown planet. 
Spock says there were no indications of surviving life forms or habitation of any kind. Kirk orders Scotty to take a team to investigate the ship, while Kirk and Spock beam down to the planet to take a look around. Kirk's team, that includes Spock, McCoy, two red shirts, who are not long for this world, I believe, arrive on the planet that is negative 220 degrees Fahrenheit. Brrr. They turn up the environment controls built into their uniforms. Cool. Didn't know they did that. They started walking around a base that they located from orbit while Uhura reports to Kirk that Scotty's team is on board the empty Giordano. Scotty finds all systems are running and functional, though he does wonder why all these systems are on if the ship is empty. Chekhov notes that the ship's power levels are low. They suddenly hear a whirring sound through a door into a hallway. Then they go ahead and follow the sound. Meanwhile, on the planet, Kirk's party arrive at the base. Uh, that is uh, standard of standard Federation construction, except for upright 10-foot metal rods driven into the ground all around the base. One of the expendable red shirts moves past the rods into the base grounds and immediately drops to the ground. McCoy reports he died of sudden, total dehydration. They stay outside the bars, trying to assess the situation. Eventually, they figure out that they can interfere with the rod's function by shooting their phasers at it. Yes, just shoot it! Kirk orders McCoy back to the ship with the fallen redshirt. McCoy must find out what caused his death, and if possible, a way to counteract it. They enter the base grounds to continue their investigation. Meanwhile, on the ghost ship, Scotty and his team continue to drive the mystery being into a corner where they confront him slash her. On the planet, Kirk's landing party enter the base building and searches for clues. They find a hole in the base's floor that leads down into the ground. Is this where the scientific team went? They decide to descend. In sickbay, McCoy's diagnosis bed tells him the dehydrated redshirt is not dead which, oddly enough, uh, gives him a crazy idea. On the science vessel, Scotty finally corners the intruder that turns out to be a homemade service robot that is holding a phaser on them. The robot says it is protecting the vessel and will not give Scotty the phaser. Chekhov walks in from another hallway, and the robot with the phaser pointing at Scotty freaks out. Meanwhile, in the tunnel... Kirk and his party are spelunking. Spock says the tunnel was constructed approximately three weeks ago, which is when the distress call went out that Uhura picked up. Kirk orders the red shirt to hold position while he and Spock continue on in the tunnel. If they do not report back in the half an hour intervals, he is to get back to the ship and tell them to beam any, everyone back to the ship no matter where they are. Kirk and Spock move forward into the tunnel until Spock's tricorder picks up an energy spike and everything goes out of focus and white. Scotty and his party dive for cover as the robot shoots its phaser past the landing party members. Scotty notices the robot is purposely not hitting them. 
No matter, Scotty uses his own phaser to shoot the robot's phaser out of its manipulator arm. The robot dashes out of the room, screaming in a way that Scotty says sounds like crying. Kirk and Spock come to in a horizontal orientation in one of those cryogenic-looking devices from the issue cover that turns out to be coffin-shaped. The woman in the diaphanous silver and white blingy nun outfit is there to say she has been there for millions of years. It's issue cover danger time for our boys. Meanwhile, on the Enterprise, McCoy and Nurse Chapel see the red shirt is barely alive but holding steady in his medically impossible state. McCoy says whatever caused the red shirt's condition, the answer is down on that planet. When McCoy fails to contact the captain due to communicator interference, the doctor decides to beam down to the planet. Meanwhile, under the planet's surface, Kirk tries to get answers out of the ghostly woman, who in response talks about her duties looking over the Chosen until the Day of Restoration. Spock figures she is some kind of robot, but the specter clarifies that she is a psionic projection that only exists in their minds. On the science ship, Scotty and his team track down the robot to the transporter room. When Scotty thinks he has it settled down, the robot takes him by surprise and tackles Scotty when he gets too close. McCoy beams down to the base and gets an update as to Kirk and Spock's whereabouts from the remaining redshirt. McCoy borrows a full-range tricorder to facilitate him following Kirk and Spock. McCoy activates the non-medical tricorder to make sure he has the hang of it and discovers... Cut to Kirk and Spock, who continue to question the ghostly lady, trying to determine exactly what's going on. She says there is no race more logical than ours and eventually tells the story of her people that were quite advanced but had no way to deal with the snow when it started to fall. After hundreds of years buried under the icy wasteland their world had become, they decided to put into suspended animation 100,000 of their people. They posted holographic guardians like herself to watch over the representatives of their population as peoplesicles. She says the conversation is over and turns to leave, telling Kirk and Spock they must be be made ready to join the others in the vault to be awakened two million years in the future. Scotty's team has the robot under control by turning down its emotion chip. Yes, emotion chips back then. And it tells them what happened to the crew. They all beamed down to the planet when the base was ready. They left him to watch over the orbiting ship. Three days later, the mission leader called up to the ship, saying they are under attack from beneath the base and giving instructions to contact Starfleet and request aid from the closest ship. Scotty contacts the Enterprise to report their findings to the captain. Speaking of the captain, he and Spock are taken to a new set of chambers where the science team has been put on ice to protect them from the freezing surface conditions. Spock is prepared first with an audible, Ugh! Meanwhile, McCoy and the red shirt have gone miles in a tunnel towards Kirk and Spock's location. The red shirt feels something new in the air, like low-level vibrations, and McCoy disappears. McCoy and the red shirt walk into the room where Spock is being prepared, and Kirk waits for his turn. 
Kirk orders McCoy back to the ship, but McCoy insists on telling Kirk what he figured out. Back in the Enterprise transporter room, Scotty and his team get the update from Uhura that the captain is still on the planet and they have been unable to contact him due to the interference. Beneath the surface of the planet, the holographic guardian now has McCoy and the red shirt, too. All three will join Spock in being prepared. On the ship, Scotty and Uhura are sick of pussyfooting around, so they try to transport the landing party up and succeed with McCoy, Kirk, and the red shirt. No Spock. McCoy shows Kirk the first red shirt that was afflicted on the planet is back to normal. Once McCoy understood the suspended animation process the aliens used, it was easy to bring him back. Well, relatively easy. Kirk and McCoy being down to save Spock and the original Federation science team. They go to tag Spock and the others for transport, but the, but the Guardian lady pops back in to stop them. Kirk disables the Guardian lady with a device that is a universal translator with a silver sphere on top. They tag and transport Spock and the others in their chambers. Once on board, McCoy explains the alien's cryogenic process involves freeze-drying the subject first. McCoy rehydrates Spock in the sick bay's pressure chamber, and voila, he is restored to perfect health, like freeze-dried onions in your cupboard. They rehydrate the scientists and their families back to health and return them to their base on the planet's surface. Kirk and the landing party take Dr. Hickson with them to the alien installation and turn off the dampening field. The Guardian returns, surprised that they returned. Kirk says they mean her and her people no harm, and she is free to continue her very long-duration mission. But first, Spock will do some tweaking to your program, against your will. Later, as the Enterprise is preparing to break orbit, they say goodbye to the science team, who will include the Guardian and her people in their studies of the planet. Spock says the Guardian is fully able to learn and grow, but so far her circumstances did not allow for much of that. Now with the science team in the picture, to teach as well as to learn, she may indeed grow into a fully fully sentient life form. McCoy bemoans the fact Spock will not be here to witness it, since she would be the perfect girl for him. Wah, 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 wah. The end. It's a good joke at the end. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, every once in a while, McCoy gets one in. So, whew, this was a long one. Yeah, it's one of the longest. Yeah. Sorry. Nah, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> well, it's not your fault. Just, just seems like a lot of, like, I don't know, man, little side stories that just didn't really add anything to it, like the robot, you know, being like a little kid and... Yeah, having a flashback from the robot's point of view on how he got reprogrammed, and mm-hmm. uh, it's just like, well, oh. it, was a, it was a little bit of a mystery. I would have rather it mm. tied into the overall mystery. I was like, oh, is this like somehow like moving people's consciousnesses and putting them inside of the robots? And this is like a little kid got put into this robot, and that's why oh. he's acting all weird. That's where I thought they were going, and then it's just like, oh no, it's just this little chip that. That the boy entered before he left, or something like that. It was just like, ah. 
and like where that went. Yeah, they don't they don't use robots much in Taws. I mean, they they encounter robots, but Federation doesn't really use robots that much, right? Um, at least in the TV show. So having a, a robot in this picture uh, in, in a Federation science team is a little odd, but they just explained it away, saying it was it was a robot, <laughs> it was a child's nanny toy. I don't know. Whatever right. it was. Yeah. Uh, oh, well. Oh, well. Oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to be positive. <laughs> uh, one but, of the things I... Here's two or three things I really liked, and that's sure. it's all artwork-driven. Um, yes. I loved the dehydrated people. The way uh, Spock looked and the, the way they looked. Look. Yes, I agree. It looked... They looked like mummies of the... You know, Leonard Nimoy as a mummy, which... It looked pretty cool. I thought it was good. Um, and then I really liked the uh, the spectral form of the, you know, the whatever she was, the the, the voice of the computer, whatever. whatever. Yeah, she looked really cool. I thought mm-hmm. very ghostly and spirit, you know, like a little spirit. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that was cool. Right. Uh, so visually i like those those two aspects a lot did, did her did her outfit remind you at all of kai win a little bit uh i guess so in that it's like a, a nun's robe or something or like, that. like a shawl like a headpiece that comes down into the dress or whatever yeah a little bit yeah, yeah. you think you think it is this is a pro- a prophet from the future <laughs> uh, maybe Sorry, I, I derailed you. Go. No, no, I was done. Oh. Yeah, no, that, okay. I really like, visually, I like those two aspects of this, the book a lot. Me too. Can I mention two things that are kind of like, mm, maybe I'm not, I'm not as crazy about? Uh, sure. Okay. So the SS Giordano Bruno is a butt-ugly ship. It looks like a butt? Let me look. It's butt-ugly. Oh, butt-ugly. That, that looks like a butt. Yeah. No, um, it's it's fine. I mean, it it looks like a Federation ship. I mean, it's got it's got the two nacelles, although they look a little little funky. And then there's a middle chamber cylinder kind of thing, and then uh, then it hooks to a uh, you know a, ra- a sphere. Mm-hmm. Um, so not a saucer, a sphere, which is you know we've seen spheres before in in some ships, some Federation ships. Uh, next gen time frame, but also some of the there are some older ones in the Archer time period that that had like a, a big sphere part too, but um, and then it's got a really weird looking. I guess the deflector dish just looks really crotchety and old, like it was put together from something from a junkyard. Um, so it looks utilitarian stuff, but it's just like uh, it's not very pleasing looking. Um, I, yeah, I can see that. I mean, it, it just looks, it looks like what the original Enterprise, I think they showed it on um, Star Trek, the next generation, or Star Trek, the movie, where they showed what the, a previous Enterprise looked like. And I think it was part of some of like concept drawings. Oh, really? Like, this thing? Okay. Yeah, no, no, no. Just the ball shape. So it kind of looked like, you know, when I saw this, I was just like, okay, they're going for that. What, what some of the original designs for the Enterprise was way back when. But then they have that weird, like, I don't know, airlock. 
at the very front. That oh, wait, is that what that is? An airlock? I don't know. What else could it be? Oh, is that supposed to be well, the deflector dish? You need to have a de- if you're going to go uh, fast in space, you need a so deflector. So that's the deflector dish. Okay. Well, that would make more sense than a, a giant airlock. Yeah, no, it, it looks cheesy, but, but you know, a lot of those concept designs from back before the show was made did look like this. Yeah. And like I say, I mean, the general shape, they've had Federation ships like this before being depicted. But a, I just, it's I just a found tennis it ball with a can of beer on top. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's almost like an elongated propane tank, the middle one. A little bit. Yeah, yeah. On its side. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, or, there you go. Yeah, yeah, we're just going to keep talking about what it kind of looks like. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> uh, anyways. Um, so what was the point of the long crystalline corridor they spent so much time going through and talking about how it's sparkly and shines with its own light, yet it seems to be roughly dug out very recently. And Was any of that needed? <laughs> well, they explain... Okay, so one good mechanism that that gave you is that's how the aliens got to the research team and and kidnapped them. And then with Kirk's party coming and looking, oh, here's something we can trace them back to, uh, to the installation. Because this installation has to be under a bunch of ice, right? So you got to get to the bad guy somehow. So from a story standpoint, I see that the, the tunnel makes sense and, and it was good that they had it. But, yeah, um... I guess the sparkly stuff is supposed to explain why they don't need flashlights. And so it's a little a little more convenient, uh, I guess. But yeah. But did we need them talking about it? No, not really. <laughs> not really. But they talk about a lot of things that may not be, have been exactly necessary. You know, it's, it's called filler. Yep, yep, yep. Well, how do you like the uniforms? Uh, that have built-in uh, thermostats. Convenient. Reminds me of the animated <laughs> series where you just have a belt buckle to do anything. Yeah, well, yeah, and at least the, the belt, you saw something around. You, there was a field around your head that kept you warm and gave you air. How do you... How do you... Uh, you don't have anything on your head. I mean, they're walking around, no problem. Hey, yeah, and it's negative... 220 degrees Fahrenheit. So the book says negative uh, 140 degrees Celsius. But translated into uh, old-fashioned stuff that we in the U.S. use, negative 220 degrees Fahrenheit. That's cold. That is way cold. Yeah, what is zero Kelvin? Oh, Kelvin? Uh, you, you would do that to me. I don't Well, I don't at zero know. Kelvin, is supposed to be at, at the point where... Uh, Everything stops, right? Oh, that that all—it's so cold that you know molecules can't even. Oh, so wow. that's negative two hundred and seventy-three Celsius. So what was this again? Negative two hundred twenty. So it's close. Wow, 
that is cold. Okay, and so, but yeah, your fabric, yeah, their, their hands and their hands and faces would just turn into, uh, you know, uh, freeze dried, freeze yeah. dried flesh as soon as it started. I agree. Oh, that's I agree. funny. I I just I just kept going. I didn't even think about it. <laughs> I was like, "Oh, it's cold." Okay, I that's what Burn wanted just you. Keep going. Just keep going. Just keep going. He didn't have to make it that cold. Yeah, it's cold. I mean, he really didn't have to do that. I mean, zero degrees, you know, Fahrenheit or whatever. It didn't have to go that cold. Anyway, whatever. Uh, so speaking yeah. of freeze dried things, can oh. we talk about the people? Sure, go ahead. So basically, he they just. Were able to turn people into beef jerky or something. I don't know. And then McCoy's able to just pump water back into them and they rehydrate. Like, you know, you yeah, can, that's it. You can go from grape back. No, you can go from raisin back to grape. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Did I get that right? I mean, yeah. am I oversimplifying it? Yeah. So, so basically, what Burn did is the fundamental problem with suspended animation is when you lower the body's temperature, and they say this in the book, although I didn't repeat it. There, yeah. Yes, there were actually were things that I did not repeat. Um, <laughs> your, your cells have water in them, and the water freezes and causes your cells to explode. So that's always the typical thing pointed at, why, you know, the big hurdle in um, suspended animation. You got to get past that. And then Byrne gave you a way to get past suspended animation, but the solution is pretty much as bad as the the cure. I mean I mean, okay, so your cells don't don't explode, but you're turned into beef jerky, like you say. I mean you you're you're turned into uh you know the freeze dried onions in your cabinet. Uh ugh, that you just ugh you know, no. You shouldn't. You shouldn't be able to come back from that and look perfectly normal. Right. I agree with you. I, mm. eh. I thought it was funny. Yeah. But the thing is, this is not the. F- they're talking about it like suspended animation doesn't work. I mean, there there are problems you can't get around. But what about the Botany Bay? What about Khan? I mean, yeah, they figured it out in the nineties. Exactly. So it's a little inconsistent when. In this story, which is of course further along in in time than uh, than what happened with the Botany Bay, um, yeah, it just isn't consistent. Well, I think he even says when he talks about he's like, you know, the way ancient people wanted to uh, do uh, suspended animation was to freeze them, and then he talked about it. So, I think he's implying that you know maybe back in the '60s it was one way, and then. Mm-hmm. In the 90s, uh, they were able to figure it out. Okay. Okay. Yeah, you can read it that way, too. <laughs> but, yeah, well, yeah, I don't think you're supposed to think of the button to bay at all. I'm just doing it because they say the 90s is when World War III happened. Right. Which, thank God it didn't. Yeah. <laughs> but Hallelujah. on the downside, we don't have uh, suspended animation like we're supposed to. So No, we don't. We don't. We so, don't have uh, long-range spaceships. Pros and cons. Pros and cons. But we do have dampening fields that look like modified um, universal translators. What kind of dampening field? Well, Explo- that's how they... 
That's how they turned off the Guardian. Right? So when they went back oh, to his Oh, here, here, here. So you were talking about in real life, in the real 90s. We had no, 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 no. I'm, I'm trying to get back to the story. Gotcha. Yeah, no, the Mr. Microphone thing? The Mr. Microphone thing. Exactly, the Mr. Microphone thing. <sighs> For you okay. youngins, that was a toy that was uh, out when I was a kid. I'm assuming it was, it, it was around when you were a kid too, right? It's an old toy, right? I, I don't remember. Uh, but yeah, I, was, I, I remember it existing, but exactly how old I was. I mean, I never had a Mr. Microphone. Yeah, me either, but I, 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 I knew of it. I knew of it too. It's like big wheels. I knew of it. I saw kids that rode on them, but it was a little past my uh, uh, big wheels. Were they age. awesome? Were awesome. They were awesome. You could and, get some speed on that bad boy. Watching the young kids zipping around on them, uh, I was just too old for them. I, I had exceeded the weight limit. Um, <laughs> That they have plastered on it. Um, it, looked, it looked like a very fun, uh, fun thing. Anyway, so Mr. Microphone, um, I did a little searching, and I think I might have even found one of the uh, photos that um, Byrne used for the comic book. Oh, really? Where's it yeah. from? From Star Trek? Oh, it's Star Trek. Oh, yeah, it's Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. It, it yeah like so it. It, it's Kirk is holding um, the Universal Translator in his right hand. And he's got his thumb like getting ready to to click it. So it's not exactly the same one, but but the orientation is spot on. So it, it's in his hand, it's in his right hand, and the angle that he's holding it at is exactly the same as in the comic book. Or cool. uh, I shouldn't say comic book; it's not a comic book. Uh, in this graphic novel, whatever. And then and then of course I'm not sure we got the silver. Uh, the silver gray ball to pop on top. Got it from somewhere, uh, but really that's all they did. And so in the in the photo from the TV show, the um, there's a red light that's on on the Universal Translator. So it looks like odds are Burn might have um, covered up the red light, <laughs> maybe as part of his repurposing it. And another interesting thing I noticed in this photo, I can't really show it to you or the folks out there in the audience, all two of them, um, is that Kirk in the, the photo novel today has a green tunic, but when you look at the photo from the web that it might have been taken from, uh, it is clearly a more of a, a tan, a light brown uh, tunic that Kirk has on. More goldy kind of thing. So you think this is greenish, not gold? Because I thought it was pretty gold. Um, it's not gold. But, it looks a little off, but not that much. Uh, oh, okay. Not like his green wraparound. So, Anyways, um, that's cool that you found the picture. though. Well, it, it's really close. Really, really close. Um, yeah. So what about the other tech, like the, uh, like the little coffin things that look just like a, I don't know, like a, just a frame that goes around your body? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so it seems like they put you in these coffin things before they transfer you to the, uh, the clear tubes. Right. Which didn't make sense. So why the transition? I guess one actually freezes you, the blue, the... The blue frame froze you, and then once you're frozen, you're put in the coffin? 
I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> they just, it's the way Byrne chose to do it. I mean, showing a little bit of variety of equipment, maybe? Yeah, like, right. you know, make it more realistic or something? I don't know. Realism? What? I, I, it could have been his objective. I thought this one went on way too long. Uh, yeah, that, it, that it, was it, it did go on way too long. Um, and there was a lot okay. of, like, beaming back and forth. I mean, just like, oh, I'm going to go down here. And then Spock's, or McCoy's like, I need to change clothes and then beam down, yet he was wearing the exact same clothes. What was up with that? <sighs> I don't know. Is, is, was he supposed to be putting on his thermal uniform, like you his said? His thermal uniform, yeah. Uh, maybe. Maybe. Okay. Maybe his maybe his normal doctor outfit uh, doesn't have the the built in the thermal thing. The only last thing I have to say about this one is, um, I I kind of liked the little robot, you especially like. what I I kind of liked him, especially when he uh, tackled Scotty. I th- I thought that was I thought he was a, a I thought he was a little R two D two ish kind of little little robot that could right. And I thought I thought Scotty was going to keep him as like a pet, like he's kept the um, holographic thing that he got from Gary Seven or whoever that was that gave it to him. Oh right. <laughs> well, that's not a pet, but yes, he does acquire things sometimes. Yeah. So, w- which issue used that? Is it this issue that they used that, or the previous one? Uh, it was definitely the previous one. Okay, previous I one. I don't think it was on this one. Yeah. Okay, that's all I'd say about this, this one. This one, the ship never took any damage. <laughs> right. But you can, I think he used that just for, you know, just for monitoring the systems. Not always just for fixing. It damage. makes sense. It makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. I think that's great. I'd be using it all the time. Exactly. I wonder if they're going to explain it, why it's suddenly gone before the show's over. Nah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But it seems like the kind of thing that every... Every starship should come with. Right. All right, so you don't have anything else? I'm done. You're done? All right. Finid. Finid, Fanafano. All right, so so then that brings us to what we're doing next week. Yes, it does. We're going to do a little combo where we're going to read a little from here and a little from there. Mm -hmm. So we have two issues of Star Trek Year 5, the ongoing IDW so I think it's, what, 15 and 16? 14 and 15. 14 and 15. And then they also came out with a, a one-shot called, uh, what's it called? Hell's Mirror or something Hell's like that? Mi- Hell's Mirror. Yeah, which is Han in the uh, Mirror Universe. Yeah, so How kind of much more evil is Khan going to be? Or is he going to be good and, and Kirk and them are evil? <laughs> I don't know. I do not know. We'll, we'll find out. So is this, does this actually take place? You, you may not know, but is he, is he uh, in his, on his planet where Kirk left him? Or this really is Space Seed? I don't know. Okay. I have not read it, so I don't know. Okay. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. I want to see, see what this is going on. I want to see what's happening. All right. Well, we'll only have to wait a week and we'll find out. Cool. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us on The Review. Later. 
Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review.